Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. All right, well, welcome back to Behind the Knife. Uh, we have a really great episode, that, something we've wanted to do for a long time, uh, specifically on the ergonomics of surgery. Uh, with us today, we have uh, Marissa Pentico and Dr. Scott Hollenbeck. Marissa Pentico, she's an ergonomic coordinator at Duke University, and since 2004, she's an occupational therapist from the State University of New York, Downstate Medical Center and College of Medicine. And then she's a certified professional ergonomist and licensed occupational therapist. And Dr. Scott Hollenbeck is a director of integrated plastic surgery, a medical student clerkship director. He's also the director of microsurgery training at Duke uh, and an associate professor of surgery at Duke as well. Uh, thank you both for joining us today on Behind the Knife. Thanks, Thanks for having us. All right. So just uh, starting off here, I guess, uh, you know, one thing we always kind of get into this is when we have people on the show is to find out why, while well, you're actually drawn to this. So Dr. Hollenbeck, how are you interested in aeronomics of surgery? Is this something that uh, you've had some past history with or uh, how did you first get interested? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's probably true for many people. Um, I didn't have too much of an interest in it, and I honestly didn't know too much about it um, until I started having some uh, symptoms of uh, musculoskeletal uh, injury and fatigue, and, and specifically, I began having some numbness in my fingers. And um, this is after about seven or eight years in, in practice. At that time, I was in, in my mid-40s, early to mid-40s, and uh started asking around some other people and came to find out that, that back and neck injuries are extremely common in, in the field of surgery and in my field in uh, plastic surgery and, and microsurgery. And uh, so I began to try to figure out if there was anything I could do to uh, make my symptoms go away uh, short of having a neck fusion. And um, <laughs> what, what I found uh, to be helpful was uh, stretching and other things that we'll we'll get into here as the uh, conversation continues, but uh, basically personal experience with uh, uh, musculoskeletal and, and neurologic symptoms. Uh, Marissa, obviously you're a trained occupational therapist. Uh, how did you become interested in the ergonomics uh, spectrum of that field? I was practicing, or I had been practicing OT for about 14 years, and I was looking for some changes, and at the time, our director had contacted me for an interview um, for the ergonomics coordinator position um, at Duke, and this was close to 15 years ago. Actually, I'm, I'm reaching my 15th anniversary in a couple months, and that's how I had gotten into it. It The ergonomics field and what they were offering in the position as a coordinator was really something that I was looking for in terms of change. Um, away from treating and more towards consulting. And so the, the position was basically calling for someone who would have a position as a safety consultant and working with the employees in Duke. So all of the employees are, are the ones that would be considered our clients. Talk to us about your program that was started off by GenSurge chief residents back in 2016. Uh, back in 2016, our our director of the ergonomics division had given an in-service to some attendings and residents. And afterwards, 
three of the chief residents had approached us asking for additional information, and one in particular was already having neck and back pain and asked for an evaluation. So I went in and observed him in surgery, met with him and consulted uh, and provided some recommendations. And they were interested in developing an ergonomics program. So we met with Dr. Kirk, who was the chair of surgery, who had given us his blessing in terms of developing the program. And we started it with training the three chief residents as coaches and as mentors for their peers. And we've begun developing and adding components of the program since. And most recently, we've begun to expand it to the other specialties within surgery, not just general surgery. And so our hopes is to involve more of the attendings. And it's something that I can continue to talk on in later conversations. And part of this program, as you are mentioning, is having the surgery residents actually training the junior residents, the chiefs training the juniors. What right. kind of what did that involve for them? What did they have to learn and, and what were they teaching the juniors? When we first began it, uh, we wanted to focus on uh, a bottom up approach. And so we worked with the chief residents. And so, again, they were supposed to be role models and mentors to their peers. And so the training involves about two hours of training on basic ergonomic principles and then some additional time spent on specific applications to ergonomics within uh, the OR and within surgery. And so what we had wanted to develop was a mentorship program where the chief residents would mentor the junior residents. And it's something that we're continuing to develop. Um, at that time, it was we wanted to start with the chief residents. But since then, we changed our approach and wanted to start from the top and work our way down. So we wanted to now focus on educating the attendings. I'd like to continue to work on uh, um, training mentors, and that would include the attendings as well as residents. So the focus at this point would be getting the program started with the attendings in terms of educating them with hopes of expanding and getting support within the OR for some of the basic ergonomic changes that we would recommend, such as adjusting table heights or adjust, adjusting postures. And we find that we really need the support of the attendings to be able to implement some of these changes in the OR. What are some of the, and I can, I think I should ask Dr. Hollenbeck first, what are some of the biggest postural mistakes uh, you see surgical residents make in the OR? Yeah, uh, there there are many and they're frequent. Um, and, and it's not just residents, it, it can be uh, attendings and, and also even nursing staff. Uh, but when it comes to, to residents, the, the main issue is they are often uh, assisting the primary surgeon. And as such, the primary surgeon usually has the, the optimal view of the field, whatever that may be, whether it's an open abdominal case or um, a, a skin case, or if it's an endoscopic or laparoscopic case, uh, usually the primary surgeon has the optimal view. And the, the assisting surgeon often is trying to position their body in an awkward way to be able to see that same view, to be able to assist effectively. It, unless you are looking for it or recognize it as a as a primary attending surgeon, you may look over and realize that your assistant is in a very awkward position, leaning halfway over the table, 
uh, maybe with one foot on the ground um, and with their back uh, extended or flexed uh, in an extreme position so they can see and help you. And, and that's been part of what we try to do, uh, what Marissa talked about in terms of coaching, um, not just at the, at the resident level, but also at the attending level so that we don't put our, our, our helpers or our assistants in, in bad positions. Um, but by far, uh, the biggest thing is, is leaning over the table so that the, uh, there's quite a bit of force then uh, generated in the lower back and uh, neck region that, that doesn't need to, need to happen and is um, detrimental over time. Are there certain specialties that you find? I mean, clearly plastic surgery, I feel like ENT, there's a lot of specialties where you're using loops a lot to kind of bend and turn in difficult areas of the body to work. Um, are there any other specific specialties that you feel like you, a lot of injuries come from? Are people with high laparoscopic volume, are they having a lot of injuries as well? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. As you begin to look deeply into the, <clears throat> the literature that's out there, every field seems to have its own set of issues. And uh, as you alluded to in, in, in my field, a lot of it is neck related um, because of the loops and because of the long uh, surgeries and positioning. Mm -hmm. in, in the general surgery fields, the uh, area we see a lot of literature coming out of on, on injuries, in fact, most of surgical ergonomics started in this particular area is laparoscopic surgery. And, and it was felt that due to the unique and new, uh, you know, instruments that were coming out and the, the different arm positions that uh, a, lot of, a lot of surgeons were having kind of upper body, back and neck and hand, more, way more hand-related issues in, in laparoscopic surgery um, because mm -hmm. of the, the size of the instruments sometimes doesn't fit the size of the hand. Um, that's especially true with female surgeons. Uh, or, or surgeons that have a smaller glove size um, shown in many different studies uh, to be a little bit more at, at risk for, for problems in the hand um, related to laparoscopic instruments. So that's led to a little bit of a push to, um, you know, design instruments that are they're more suited for, for different types of sizes of hands. Um, but those are the, probably the two biggest uh, areas is uh, either open type surgery that's long and, and difficult physically or uh, laparoscopic surgery that is, you know, requires an unusual position with your head sort of lifted up and your arms sometimes uh, away from your body. Um, but those are, those are the two that I see the most in the literature. And just real quick, Marissa, I mean, just from the standpoint of surgeons becoming injured in the operating of a lifetime of uh, in surgery, is this something you're seeing a um, maybe an increase in in the in the re maybe last you know, five years, or is it is it becoming more prominent that people are becoming injured uh, because of the new technologies that we're using, or is that is that you think it's stayed about the same? We I recently took a look at our surgeons and to see what kind of injuries that we were seeing. And I really didn't see a whole lot that were related to the act of performing surgery. So a lot of what we're hearing, and, and, and not to say that there aren't any, because we're working with a physical therapist, we've begun to include PT in our program. And he's seeing um, surgeons and treating them for spinal problems primarily. Um, and so we're not seeing it in terms of injury reports, which is what I would have access to, but PT could tell you 
the, uh, the number of surgeons that he's been treating with problems. So I'm not seeing the numbers um, at Duke. However, it's not to say that we're not having any. Um, we've had surgeons that I've consulted with who've reported neck and upper back problems um, and some who've had already had surgery. So it is occurring. Um, we're just not seeing it reported, at least in Duke. But there are a lot of literature that indicates the level of injuries that sur surgeons in general are having through the different kinds of procedures, whether it's laparoscopic, robotic, open surgeries. And I'm also starting to, to see the risk factors as well with orthopedic surgeons because I was asked to, to work with some. And their risk factors are also different. So depending on the procedures, there are various risk factors. What I've seen so far with um, a lot of the surgeons that are, I've been working with are postural issues. And, and a major component of that would be due to ill-fitting loops. But what I'm starting to see with the orthopedic surgeons are the different issues involving force, um, the amount of force that they're having to exert. Um, and so that's something that I'll also be observing in the near future. We've been focusing a lot more on the open surgeries and also with head and neck surgeons, with general surgeons, with open surgeries, and also I've, I've observed laparoscopic surgeries, but they've also indicated there are some issues as well with robotic surgeries. And so we've, um, I've done some observations on um, what they do with the robotic surgeries and see some risk factors. So with different procedures, there are different risk factors. There are always risk factors. It just depends on what part of the body is most affected and the type of procedures that they're performing. I would not like to switch gears and talk about the interventions that uh, surgery residents and OR staff attendings and everyone can take place in order to minimize um, injuries like such. And I think I will go uh, systematically, maybe ask Marissa first and that Dr. Hollenbeck can also um, kind of give his uh, his opinion and um, on these matters from uh, an attending uh, point of view. So setting up the patient, um, in the OR, what are some of the techniques and tricks that uh, residents and attendings can uh, can do in order to minimize injuries? I was once working with one of the plastics residents. I had observed her and provided recommendations on what I saw were the risk, risk factors and, and how those risk factors could be addressed. And again, it's just a matter of how she was positioning herself and her patient. And one of the things that she observed about herself and she wanted to make a note of for the future was that it really makes good sense to be able to plan ahead of time. So depending on the type of procedure and the location of the, the procedure is setting the patient up even before the surgery itself. So whether it's scooting the patient to the side of the table, and in this case she was working with I think the posterior shoulder and so they had the patient inside lying, but the patient was not positioned towards the edge of the table. So she had to bend over and reach for the, for the duration of the surgery. So one of the things that she really commented on was how important it would be to plan ahead of time in terms of where the patient should be positioned and where the patient should, how the patient should be positioned for most of the procedure. So definitely positioning the patient as close as possible and depending on the site, um, adjusting 
the table as well. So whether it's tilting it in addition to moving the patient to the edge of the table. And again, it also depends on the location. With one other chief resident I was working with, he was performing some kind of vascular surgery on on both legs, and he was bent over, again, because he was trying to access the uh, leg that was opposite and furthest away from him. So we talked about what he could have done, and he mentioned that it probably would have been best for him to have just moved closer to that leg rather than reaching across the table. So I think one of the things the surgeons probably can feel more comfortable about is, if it's feasible, of course, is being able to move around the table so that you can get closer to the the site and so that there are less awkward postures as a result, again, because there are so many other risk factors. So the, the goal is to just reduce as many of them as possible. And as I had told Dr. Hollenbeck, if a lot of times you just can't avoid the the risks. And so if you can just move in and out of awkward positions and just take some time to correct yourself and so that way you're not continually positioned awkwardly. That's also another helpful um, thing to do. But definitely setting up the patient ahead of time if you can. And then positioning, the, the surgeon would be positioning themselves so that he or she would be closer to the patient. And a lot of times, again, they get so involved with the procedures that they lose sight of their their postures. And so another thing that we've been working on is postural self-awareness. What are some of the internal and external tools that would help them develop more of an awareness of their position, especially for a prolonged position, a prolonged procedure? And also just using the best equipment and and how the equipment should be positioned. So if they're working with a microscope, I, I would educate them on the best postures when using a microscope. And then it really would be helpful if the uh, equipment is adjustable so that it could adjust based on the best postures that the surgeon can can achieve. So it's a matter of setting up the patient, the self, and the equipment to promote the best postures. Dr. Hollenbeck, anything to add there specifically about uh, planning the positioning ahead of time and planning your, your your place position EOR as well as the postural self-awareness? Sure. Um, that was a very thorough uh, answer there. But I guess I would add or echo at least what Marissa said is a lot of times what I'll do is is when I set the patient up before surgery with the residents, we'll, we'll actually get in position as if we're going to do the surgery um, even before we've sort of, you know, scrubbed or prepped or anything and see if if it's a good position. If we notice that the patient is perhaps too far over on one side of the bed uh, during that exercise, we can simply move the patient back over. Uh, If we notice that the arm board is in a bad position uh, that's going to create problems, then we we reposition that or tuck the arm or do something different. So uh, just as a quick little exercise right before before we go out and and scrub and and begin to prep, we will actually kind of stand there and and sort of simulate the positioning that we'll be in during the surgery. The other thing is you got to make sure the bed is working. Um, uh, we always check the bed, make sure it doesn't have a malfunction because we want to be able to uh, make the bed airplane left and right if needed. And we want to be able to raise it up or go into Trendelenburg and all these sorts of things. And there's nothing worse than, than realizing that, you know, halfway into the surgery that the bed doesn't work. Um, so those are two checks that, that we always do right at the beginning. 
uh, which I found to be helpful. And then uh, specific, oh, sorry, go on postural self-awareness. How do you, how do you specifically determine when your, you know, your posture is maybe off or you're yeah. starting to become yeah. fatigued? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Uh, I, I would credit Marissa with a lot of that. Uh, she does. As, I don't think she's mentioned this yet, but as part of her her uh, program that she has, she offers a consultation with with different people. It could be residents or attending surgeons. And so I, I took her up on that one time, and and basically she comes into the operating room and and takes pictures of you. Uh, doing your surgery. And sometimes she doesn't, you know, make a big production about when she comes in. So you may not even see her in the room and you're doing your surgery. And then a week or two later, uh, you get an opportunity to sit down with her and go over some of the, the photos that, that visually show you doing things that, that are obvious to you. They look really bad. And you know which part of the surgery that is, and you know, gosh, that during that part of the surgery, I really have bad posture. So that's the first part of awareness is actually seeing yourself. It would almost be like if you were practicing a sport, it, it's sometimes nice to see a video of yourself, and then you can understand what you were doing or not doing correctly. Uh, it's the same kind of thing. And there, there's some more advanced uh, things uh, that have been out there. I personally have not found these to be uh, too helpful, but there are some uh, monitors and other devices that you can wear, which uh, will give you biofeedback basically during uh, times of bad posture. So if your neck is flexed a certain amount uh, for a certain amount of time, there's a small vibration or something um, that, that lets you know that you're in a bad posture. The, the thing for me is, and I've talked to Marissa about this extensively, there are just some surgeries that I know for sure I'm going to have bad posture during the surgery. I just cannot do it without uh, getting in an awkward position to see what I need to see, uh, whether, mm -hmm. you know, move the bed or more retraction. We've tried all that. There's just some surgeries are just very difficult and there's going to be no way to make them easy. I think what Marissa's tried to tried to help me with on those kind of things is is to move in and out. And she said this earlier: move in and out of the bad posture. It's the prolonged uh, bad posture that's really uh, hard on your body. I think so. An hour and a half in the same exact bad position is much worse. So that that goes along with things like uh, micro breaks and other things, which I think we'll get into here shortly. But um, posture awareness is, is good, um, both with video feedback and then even biofeedback. Surgery is, and the tools that we use are unavoidable, like using lead apparents or like using like foot pedals that can only reach in a certain position. Are there tips and tricks from you and Marissa um, that residents and OR staff can, can do? And you mentioned one of them being micro breaks, but any other uh, trip tips or tricks that you have for our audience? Uh, yeah, sure. I can start with that one. Uh, and, and I'd like to, if I could, just expand a little bit on the breaks um, because I, I think they're they're very important. Um, traditionally, when I was being taught and many others, uh, it, it was felt that if you took a break, that was somehow uh, either a sign of weakness or it would compromise the integrity of the surgery. Um, I have found that to, to not be the case. And in fact, especially during very, very long surgeries, I found that, that I actually do better, uh, surgically speaking, when I, when I do take some breaks. You just get mentally and physically fatigued after seven, eight hours. It, you need to take breaks. 
Um, but even on a smaller scale, um, the concept of micro breaks is is a periodic um, activation of a, of a break, basically a mandatory break, uh, where there may be something in the room that uh, sounds like an alarm or a bell or something uh, every 45 minutes to an hour. And during when that bell goes off, you, you're supposed to get to a point where you can stop and then um, actually do some stretches. And, and I haven't I haven't initiated that. I know some people find that helpful, but Usually, I'll try to take a break every every two hours or so, and there there's ways you can do the surgery that way without making any sort of negative impact on the patient. You just take a five minute break, and usually I'll actually scrub out, get some water, um, go to the bathroom, and then actually do some stretches off to the side. and And most of these stretches are going to be uh, your your postural muscles. So those are the muscles in the back, uh, which are um, the ones that are, are helpful for preventing. Uh, your body from just flexing in, and Marissa can talk more about this. But uh, when you see somebody doing surgery, typically all their all their body flexors are activated, and so we we do try to do some stretches and exercises of the of the extensors and the postural muscles in the back. And I do that during during long surgeries every couple hours, and in between surgeries too. If I have a, a day with sort of outpatient smaller cases, um, in between cases I, I will stretch, and I used to not do that. Um, and that's probably been the most helpful thing to me is approaching surgery more like uh, you would approach a, an athletic event. You would never go play pickup basketball and not stretch. You wouldn't go out and play tennis and not do any kind of stretching or anything like that. I know surgery is a lot different than, than those sports, but um, there is a physical demand. And so I approach it more like that with a like a warm up and then a warm down. So some stretching before, and I'll even do this in the operating room. Uh, it used to be people would look at me kind of funny, but um, now it's just part of it. I literally look like I'm getting ready to go in and, and play a basketball game. I'll do some some stretching. Uh, and then at the end of the case, I'll, I'll also stretch as well, which I found that to be a very important. We used to just run out of the operating room, go get some coffee, go check emails. And uh, I think it's important to take a few minutes to uh, take care of your body and stretching is a big one. In terms of other things in the operating room, uh, risers are, are very helpful. Um, a lot of times there'll be a, a big size discrepancy in terms of height and <clears throat> things like pedals. And, and that is just even exacerbated uh, when you have these uh, size discrepancies. So um, you got to set up risers if necessary. Usually you want to set the table to the height of the tallest person in the room and then everybody else gets risers. Uh, sometimes that doesn't happen based on seniority. It's often set to the the height of the most senior person in the room, um, but that can be detrimental to people that are taller and, and have to then sort of bend over. So uh, that that's also important. Um, in terms of lead aprons, things like that, um, those are those are difficult and very heavy. And um, I think uh, you got to get out of those when you don't need to, to wear them. Um, the idea that, that you're just going to wear it all day and you're going to go down and get your lunch wearing your lead apron and it looks kind of cool and people look at you and all that, I, I think that's a mistake. I think you want to use the lead apron when you're using fluoro, when you're using um, things you need to protect yourself. But when that part's over, you know, take a break, Get take your de-scrub, take your lead apron off rescrub and continue the rest of the surgery. There's no reason to do two hours more of surgery um, with a lead apron when you don't when you don't really need it. So 
those are my recommendations about those. Yeah. I love the leather apron thing. I hate wearing leather aprons for that long. And I always scrub out, you know, it's as nice as you become further along in residency. And now I'm, now I'm done with it, but you can start to take those breaks without having to like worry about what the perception of you are going to become. And this is something I think truly, you know, all those things that you said, uh, especially the micro breaks and everything. I think that's truly something that we should definitely start integrated into all surgery residencies. Um, Marissa, I want you to talk quickly about, uh, if you if you would, talk more about how you observe people in the operating room and that process and those little counseling sessions you do with them. I tend to, um, when I schedule the procedures, I normally let the surgeons know that I'll be coming in at least half an hour after the first incision. So that way, they've already begun positioning themselves in postures that they normally would be working in for prolonged periods. So I, I like doing it when when there's a, when I'm already seeing the, the postures. And so I usually stay for about 45 minutes to an hour to just see if there's anything else I can observe. But mostly what I've been observing were just how the surgeons were positioning themselves, depending on the, the procedures that, that they're performing. So whether it's with a microscope or whether it's an open surgery or a lap laparoscopic work. And so I, I make note of what the risk factors are, mainly for the sessions that I've been observing. It's the, the main risk factors have primarily been postural, um, and although I would recognize that, again, with the orthopedic surgeons, it would also involve force as well. But mainly, it's been postural. And ideally, if it's not disruptive for the, the surgeons, I would pull them aside or if they ask for feedback at that point, I would just provide some brief feedback on how they can be better positioned. For example, there was one situation where an attending was using a microscope and I gave him some tips on how he could sit differently and how he would need to position the microscope better so that he was less awkwardly positioned. So sometimes I wait for the invitation of the the surgeon for feedback, and I would like the opportunity to continue to and to, to do it more often is if I can give them feedback for that procedure, during that procedure, so that way I can see what's happening before and then what's happening after the, the changes are made. And usually I see differences in improvements in this case in postures, but it's dependent on whether it would be disruptive for the surgeon or not, and so I try not to I try not to be too disruptive, but if they ask for feedback, I do give them feedback at that point in time. Otherwise, I would meet with them after the procedure, whether it be a couple of days to a week after, and review what the risk factors were and what I observed, and recommendations in terms of how to improve postures, and as I said, how to position the patient and the self and the, the equipment so that they're achieving the best postures. But that would also include, as I had mentioned previously, Previously, if there are, if, if there's just no way to to correct an extremely awkward position, just being aware of it and moving in and out of it is really the best thing that the surgeon can do. That's great. Yeah. Uh, do you make uh, hospital calls? Do you go to different hospitals, or is this something that you guys have <laughs> expanded outside of Duke yet? No, actually, not. The uh, my clients are are Duke employees, so. My consulting position is within within Duke itself, so my, oh, okay. my clients would be the yeah. Uh, we do have our director does consult externally. It's just that, um, as I had told Dr. Hollenbeck, there are four ergonomists and forty five thousand employees, and and we're growing. 
and continuing to grow. So really our focus at this point is just the, the health and safety of the employees. However, there is opportunity for um, transmitting the knowledge around. I mean, it's it's something that people can do outside as well. It's pretty much the same risk factors and the recommendations would be the same. So it's knowledge for everybody to benefit yeah. from. Yeah, I feel like there's a opportunity for a big consulting group for, you know, to service a bunch of different hospitals here if the, if the hospital doesn't have this in, already intact. But moving on, I, I'd like to quickly talk. I know this is probably going to be a very expansive subject on loop fitting, and it's probably hard to visualize yeah. just talking about it on a podcast. But can you give, just give me the basics on how to fit loops? You know, where we I did residency, a lot of times you're fitting these when you're an intern. You have no clue even how mm-hmm. to hold a right. you know a suture let alone uh, how to like work with loops on so just give me the basics on how to fit loops properly well a couple of years ago i observed one of the loops rep fitting residents in the cafeteria and what he would ask them to do was he would ask them to stand look at their thumbs with their elbows bent at 90 degrees and he would measure the distance from their eyes to their fingers and he would do the same thing using their hands and uh, while they were sitting down, and I thought that was not specific enough to what the surgeons did. They don't sit there or stand there and, and stare at their fingers. So I asked the loops rep to meet with me in terms of how can we improve the loop fitting process so that it's more representative of what the surgeons actually did. So I asked one of the attendees of the educational program if we can have access to the sim lab at Duke, where there would be high adjustable tables and there are suturing kits, and there are mannequins so that we can actually simulate the height at which the surgeons worked at and simulated a frequently performed task, which was suturing, but it's also a visually demanding task. So the we had the, when we scheduled the loop settings, it would be in the sim lab, and the, the loops rep knows what the process is in terms of having the, the surgeons simulate the the suturing task while they were actually being measured. And most recently, what I've begun to do, too, while I was attending loop fitting, is I would take a look at what the neck posture would be like. Um, for example, if the loops rep had recommended a particular type of a loop, I would take a look at what's happening at the neck position. And if I felt that the, the posture could be better, um, there was still too much neck flexion, I would ask the loops rep what the options were in terms of loops to improve the neck position so that we're seeing a more upright neck posture. And so those those are questions that I would ask of the loops rep because I, I don't know much about their tools, but what I do know of is how the neck should be positioned. And what we're trying to achieve is the minimal amount of neck flexion. And so I ask the reps what the options are for getting those close to neutral um, neck posture so that the neck is as upright as possible. And then what I've also started to emphasize as well was the follow-up. So after the surgeons receive their loops, I asked them to follow up with the loops rep to make sure that if there were any problems, that they would be contacting the loops rep. And if there are any questions, I'd ask them to have someone take a photo of them with their loops during surgery. And so I could take a look at their neck position and see if there are if, if the neck position could be even better. And so within a six-month time frame, which is when I was told would be the best time to make any kind of changes, I'd like to be able to see 
what their neck positioning is. And then so that way, if there are any problems or if they're complaining of neck pain or if it's not fitting well, then I emphasize that they mm-hmm. connect back with the loop strep to make sure that any changes and modifications that are needed be made within that six-month time frame so that way it's still free at cost. Yeah, that's excellent. I, I mean, just hearing you talk about that, I can already tell that my loops are probably fitted incorrectly. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, just have I someone mean, take a photo of you and yeah. see how much neck, neck flexion you would have. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Hollenbeck, you know, that was great. That, moving on to a couple other things that, you know, you already mentioned dealing with, you know, in plastics and ENT, I know you guys use foot pedals more in vascular, you know, talking about that, uh, kind of your feet more so, uh, the positioning of the foot pedal and maybe like different types of footwear. How do those things play into the ergonomics uh, spectrum? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, foot pedals have never been too much of a problem for me. We do use uh, bipolar cautery quite a bit, and, and we do use a foot pedal activator for that. Uh, you do have to sort of stand on one foot and then push the pedal, but I haven't found that to be too much of a problem once I, I get it in a good position. Um, the, the biggest problem is when the cord gets pulled and then it's out of my reach and, and have to get it back, but usually the nurse can help bring that back into position. Um, but you do bring up an, uh, an important point, I think, and that's uh, footwear. And uh, it's interesting. We did a study about a year or two ago, and we asked medical students through a survey mechanism, mm-hmm. um, what was their most uh, sort of difficult time during their uh, med school in terms of ergonomics, in terms of musculoskeletal fatigue, and, and they cited surgery. The surgery rotation is number one. Not mm-hmm. surprising. And then um, they, we asked them. We had a little diagram of a of a body, and they could click on different areas where where they hurt the most at the sort of end of the day or end of the rotation. And not surprisingly, it was the feet uh, was number one, and lower back uh, closely uh, behind that. Um, so uh, I think you know when you stand up for a long period of time your feet are going to hurt, but there's got to be ways to make that better. And and so we're very interested in the use of compression stockings. You hear a lot about this just sort of anecdotally. You see more and more commonly people that run a lot are wearing these. They, they're now for sale, you know, at every running store and sports store as you can buy these compression uh, socks. And so we're, we're actually looking into that, whether that is helpful uh, for people in terms of how they feel at the end of, of surgery to wear those. But I also think, you know, padded shoes are, are going to be the best. The The notion that you would wear like your dress shoes into the OR and do four to eight hours worth of surgery seems uh, seems odd. It would be, again, like playing basketball and dress shoes or tennis. And, and so you would want to wear shoes that are that are really good. I think clogs and things like that also um, may, maybe not – while traditionally optimal, maybe not the best for, uh, you know, in terms of uh, preventing, you know, pain and discomfort in your foot. So uh, I think the best are, are going to be the athletic shoes. And so like running shoes, things like that is what I, what I recommend with compression socks. Interesting. Yeah, I I were I remember that being my surgery clerkship too. My feet were always such were so painful. I I 
kind of justified as I wasn't really doing much or just watching as a student. So, you know, maybe my, I was paying more attention to my feet, but when you become a resident, you know, you start to do stuff and they don't really bother you anymore. So, but I don't know, who knows Maybe I changed shoes since then. So, um, yeah, you probably blocked it out <laughs> yeah, when you're, yeah. when you're a med student, you're kind of bored and you're just sitting there thinking about what you're going to have for dinner and <laughs> uh, other things. And then you're, yeah. you start wondering, gosh, my feet are really hurting. Yeah. I think uh, when you're doing stuff, you just sort of lose track of that. Yeah. Uh, Kind of thing. Well, I guess the takeaway is athletic shoes, then, huh? Is probably the best bet. I like that. So, well, so, there yeah. are there are anti fatigue mats that are used in the oh, OR, yes. um, mm-hmm. but the from the safety perspective, it's also uh, our question is how well or how often are they being cleaned um, right. by the housekeeping staff. The other option that we offer are anti fatigue insoles, which actually go into the shoes. But the other thing too that we've also touched upon are the micro breaks. So uh, taking the opportunity to um, alternate positions, which is something that I, I recommend to the surgeons as well. If it is feasible within the procedure, it, uh, would it be possible to alternate positions, to alternate between sitting and standing so that you're not in one position or you're not standing for the entire duration of the, the procedure? And it's not something I freely recommend. It's something I leave up to the surgeons to determine whether it's feasible for them to change their positions or if they are usually standing during an open abdominal position, for example, is it feasible for them to sit down so that they're not standing for the entire duration. So what we recommend from the ergonomics perspective is to alternate postures. So not only are the surgeons moving in and out of awkward positions, but also moving on and off their mm-hmm. feet. So alternating between sitting and standing is something that we would also recommend. I guess the, the last thing I want to go into here before we end is something we probably do more and operate nowadays and the technology and the documentation that goes along with surgery. Uh, what kind of tips and, you know, obviously there's problems of staying at a computer screen from the vision standpoint to the ergonomic standpoint, but what kind of tips can you uh, give us for uh, I'll go with uh, Marissa first here about regarding use of computers and the setup of that, as well as you, maybe even cell phones, walking around with cell phones the entire day, because that's how we communicate. Yeah. Part of what I had started to build into the educational component for the the surgeons and the, the residents is uh, a computer workstation component. Um, and I guess you're talking outside of the surgery. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, just after the yeah. case, you're done, you know, you're sitting at your office documenting. Yeah. As I was telling Dr. Hollenbeck the other day, you know, if you're you're in front of the computer for a prolonged period of time, the same concept is you have the ability to alternate between sitting and standing rather than sitting for hours in front of the computer. That would that would be great. Um, there are sit stand, many sit stand options available now, but there are also free sit-stand options. For example, if you're taking phone calls, you can stand up or take bathroom breaks. So again, the the same concept of avoiding prolonged positions, not only in surgery, but also in front of the computer. Generally, what we recommend is someone who is properly set up would be someone who's seated with their feet flat on the ground, hips and knees at about the same height. So making sure that you've got a height-adjustable chair to start off with so that you're sitting properly. And then having some kind of a height adjustable 
platform, whether it's a sit stand or whether it's a keyboard tray, so that the keyboard and mouse are lowered down to elbow height. Unless you're an extremely tall person, keying up at desk height is really high for a lot of uh, a lot of individuals. So bringing the keyboard and mouse down to elbow height is also more comfortable. And then making sure that the top of your monitor screen is at about eye height and that it's within arm's length. And we do emphasize that no matter who you are, whether it's lab workers or office workers or surgeons sitting in front of the computer, that if you're doing it for long periods of time, that you need not only to take breaks, but to make sure that you're properly positioned in front of the computer. As far as cell phone use, the same concept. Um, using the speakerphone so that it's not held up to your ear or using headsets or earbuds is also helpful as well. But again, avoiding prolonged static positions. You know, it's it's one of our more common recommendations, no matter what employee is doing what type of a job. It's just making sure that you're avoiding those awkward postures as much as possible. Great. Uh, Dr. Hollenbeck, anything else to add there? Uh, no, I think you, you need to just be aware of it and, and find what works for you. Uh, another thing I've heard people talk about that have had neck and back surgery is, is they thought um, their sleeping was also perhaps played into that. So uh, oh, I, I'm not an expert at, at, you know, sleep ergonomics, but I think um, there is something to, to be aware of in terms of your neck position, um, pillows and, and things like that. But yeah, those are the major ones, your surgery positioning, and then afterwards uh, on the computer, which, as you said, is a major part of, of what we do now is spend time on the computer and then walking around with our phone in our hand looking down yeah. at it. Um, but I think if you incorporate stretching into your, your daily routine, uh, that, that's helped me a, a ton. And just to follow up, you know, the nerve uh, symptoms I was having just have gone away, fortunately. I don't know, maybe a year from now, I'll have gotten a neck fusion, but uh, fortunately for now, um, just with these postural stretches um, and and bringing my shoulders back away from the front of my body, uh, that that has helped. And uh, unfortunately, I, I feel a lot better. Good. Well, this has been a great talk. Um, I know uh, we will definitely uh, publish the, the two links you guys have sent us on the Duke surgery, especially on the stretches. And then uh, there was one uh, specifically in the ergonomics uh, program. Uh, I hope to see a lot more of these programs uh, get started throughout the country. And um, I hope to see it actually, you know, at the ACS and all the meetings become more of a prominent a topic, you know, because I think there's a lot of surgeons and residents that would benefit this. You know, a lot of surgeons start their career um, not worrying about this because you're you're young and you're healthy. But after, you know, 20 some years of doing surgery or plus, mm -hmm. and you start to it starts to go away. So uh, yeah, it's I think interesting. You, I'll, I'll, I'll add to that if I could real quick on sure. that. Um, the It's interesting. You look through the data and most people get injured, at least have their significant injury in their early part of their career, um, kind of like what I was saying about myself in the mid 40s to late 40s. And it's it's felt that it's because it's the most productive, most demanding part of your career. You've just finished your training and you're doing difficult cases because that's what you get sent and your practice is building up and you're doing more and more and more. And so if you look, it's not the 65-year-old the that's getting the neck fusions and the back fusions. And if you ask around your local people, I, I, I bet you're going to find 
most people have had trouble in their 40s, and that's that's when this stuff happens. So uh, I think it's important to be aware of it, you know, early on, and and even involve some of these these things early on. A lot of it's culture change too. Um, as I alluded to a little bit, there's a, mm-hmm. a little bit of a resistance to to taking breaks, a little bit of resistance to stretching, uh, resistance to wearing different kind of shoes and things like that. So um, I, I think with awareness and culture change, a lot of these things will get better. Well, Marissa and Dr. Hollenbeck, I, I thank you again for um, joining us on Behind the Knife today. We hope to hear back from you at one other point. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Until next time, dominate the day.